Welcome to a place of wellness and healing for both your body and mind. Get ready to live a happy, healthy, energized life that totally rocks. You're listening to Straight Talking Natural Health, a no BS podcast for busy women who want to ditch the fatigue, find balance and feel great with your host and naturopath, Jules Galloway. Today's guest is someone I've been meaning to reach out to for a long, long time. He is a board-certified general practice physician on Australia's Sunshine Coast. He has a fellowship and master's degree in nutritional and environmental medicine and five years' experience of working in intensive care medicine. He runs a busy integrative medicine practice called Lotus Holistic Medicine, helping his patients to achieve optimal health and finding answers to complex medical problems. We love a bit of complex stuff here on the show. He was the first non-US physician to complete the certification in biotoxin illness with Dr. Richie Shoemaker in 2014 and is now leading the way in Australia as the go-to doctor for mold illness, SIRS and MCAS. And that's a really big deal because sadly we're still dealing with a system where a lot of people in Australia don't recognise or fully understand these conditions. We see patients being turned away, being told there's nothing wrong with them, prescribed the wrong medications and supplements and coming away feeling unheard, frustrated and desperate for answers. So thank goodness for doctors like our guest today. I can't wait to pick his brain about all things inflammation, mould and mast cells, those pesky little things. Please welcome to the show the amazing Dr. Sandeep Gupta. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. You're welcome, Jules. It's great to be here with you. Fantastic. Can you just give us a little bit of a background first? Because it is an interesting field of medicine that you found yourself in. How did you end up here and becoming so interested in this stuff? Yeah, it's a bit of a long story, but basically I was practicing as a uh, intensive care doctor in Brisbane and uh, really going down the line of probably specializing in intensive care at some point. And when I was overseas uh, in Oregon in, I think it was 2005, I actually um, picked up a gut bug called Shigella and uh, and ended up taking an antibiotic. And... Uh, According to the, the standard paradigm, that should have been the end of it. But instead, I ended up getting massive fatigue and headaches and uh, gut irritation and so on. Okay, and, so then you had your, your own sort of road back to recover from there. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, and, and basically, I started researching about the microbiome and uh, it was something that I really had learned nothing about and it really started me asking a lot of questions as to why that wasn't part of the standard medical curriculum. I then, uh, you know, then really gradually switched my career over to integrative general practice and uh, as a Result of that, I um, I then set up my own practice on the Sunshine Coast Lotus Holistic Medicine, and then the universe decided I hadn't had enough uh, lessons as yet, and so I then <laughs> had a house flood in uh, in 2012, and uh, really developed quite a lot of um, mold and other microbial growth on a lot of our furnishings and possessions and so on. And my partner at the time became extremely sick. And I could not really understand what was going on at the time. And it led me to investigating mold in much more detail and and seeking out experts such as Dr. Richie Shoemaker. 
uh, who I then did a physician certification with. And really that's just started this whole journey of, of investigating mold as a major contributing factor towards disease. Yeah, it's really interesting to to know that, and, and not surprising, but uh, it's a bit sad to know that things like microbiome are not being covered in medicine yet. I hope that's changed. Do you think that's changing? Uh, there probably is a gradual shift, yeah, towards a little bit more information as more research comes out, but it's a very slow shift, you could say. So, you know, often, often there's a lag between what's taught at medical schools of 20 years or more between what's coming out in the literature, which is it's just a shame in a sense. Yeah. So you sought out Richie Shoemaker, who is like the mold guy over in the US. Can you just uh, tell our listeners a little bit about his his way of looking at the world and, and, and what you learned from doing his education? Yeah, sure. So he, he's a rural general practitioner in Maryland in the northeast uh, United States, and he started getting into the area of biotoxins uh, in the 1990s from memory, and he started publishing papers on something called Fisteria, and that was basically a type of, uh, a type of cyanobacteria uh, that relates to uh, contaminated bodies of water and he, he lived in an area called the Chesapeake Bay area and people were getting really sick who had been exposed to the water and uh, he gave one one patient one day who had diarrhea cholestyramine and hoping that it would help her diarrhea but then she came back a few days later and said well hang on not only did that help my diarrhea but it helped everything else as well. And so that led him to hypothesize that it was a biotoxin that was being involved. He then published a number of papers, as I say, in The Lancet and so on, and then started really dealing with a lot of chronically ill patients and then started looking at other biotoxins as being possible causes of disease. And that led him to look at water-damaged buildings and tick bites and some other rare things like brown recluse spider bites. And he created the, the concept of chronic inflammatory response syndrome, which was based on the original research on sepsis. And his, uh, his hypothesis that what was happening is that in genetically predisposed individuals, uh, there was a chronic inflammatory response occurring uh, in response to exposure to biotoxins of various types. Mm. So tell me more about this chronic inflammatory response syndrome or SIRS as we often refer to it around the traps. What are the symptoms and, and how, how does it go from just some, well, just some, but how does it go from some biotoxin exposure into this massive inflammatory situation? Yeah, so when an individual is exposed to biotoxins, let's say from water damaged buildings or, or from a tick bite, it really depends on how robust an immune response they're able to mount against those biotoxins as to whether they become ill or not. And so if a person has normal genetics and they don't have any other predisposing factors, then uh, they should be able to mount what's called a proper acquired immune response, which is heralded by the formation of antibodies. At least that, that's what the original uh, hypothesis was. And uh, however, in those who had a genetic defect, which was thought to be related to HLA or human leukocyte antigen, 
they were not able to um, produce a proper acquired immune response, and instead they developed a chronic inflammatory response, which was, it's basically the immune system trying to fight off those biotoxins, but basically not being able to do so in an effective and targeted manner. And then what's the flow-on effect in terms of symptoms? What are we looking for in SIRS as as being the things that kind of prick up your antennae and, and make you go, oh, I think this is what we need to look at investigating? Yeah, so for people who are practicing functional medicine and so on, probably one of the key things would be someone who's simply not responding to functional medicine protocols for six or 12 months or longer. And uh, and, and that lack of response is, is a really big pointer to the fact that there's something else going on. So let's say you've done some work on the microbiome and you've, you've basically optimized the nutrition, then basically... Yeah, then basically you're you're looking at something else being involved and often bio, biotoxins are probably going to be the biggest category. It also can be other things like emotional blocks um, and major trauma, um, et cetera. Yeah. yeah, so stress definitely plays a factor as well. Yeah, it does appear to. I mean, it wasn't actually talked about in the original literature, but we've found that 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 it's actually very common that CRS patients have uh, a degree of emotional trauma from childhood and so on that needs to be worked through. And that can be a, uh, a predisposing factor, we believe. Yeah, right. That's, that's really interesting. And that, and that's, it's refreshing and really holistic kind of approach, isn't it? To be looking at the whole person and the whole history, not just biotoxin response. Yeah, I think I think as the years have gone by and more and more physicians have been able to look at this area, probably the the scope of what's involved in biotoxin illness has broadened, and so other pieces like the emotional trauma piece have um, started to become clear. And so, you know, that that's that's one that originally, as we say, the, the hypothesis was that it's simply a genetic defect and there's nothing you can do about it. But now we, we see it as a much more complex interaction between genes and the environment. And uh, and and that means that there's there's a lot of work that needs to be done on various different levels of healing for mm. people who are suffering from this. Mm. Yep. <laughs> it's always it always comes back to treating the whole person and not the disease, doesn't it? Yes. Yeah. It, it does. And it's very different if you just have a very acute exposure and you know you just become unwell for one or two months like that's something that could quite possibly just be dealt with quite easily using some physical therapies like cholestyramine and so on. Yeah. But um, if it's a chronic problem, the, the more chronic it is, the more likely it is to have multiple layers. Yeah. So this might be a good time to ask you, please, to differentiate between SIRS, MCAS, and just garden variety mold illness or, or uh, like like you said, a response to a biotoxin exposure. Because I do feel like out there it it can be very confusing to, and, and we don't always need to put a label on things, I know, but it can be a very confusing thing to diagnose. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, so we mainly split mold-related illnesses into three categories. 
And the uh, the first is um, mold allergy, which probably is the one that most uh, medical practitioners are familiar with. And so uh, if you have mold allergy, you know, it's likely that you'll get things like a runny nose and an itchy throat and, and similar symptoms on response to exposure to mold. And so it doesn't tend to be as severe, although in very severe cases, you know, one could get more severe symptoms like, uh, like anaphylaxis or basically a situation where you can, you, your airway can block up and you can get low blood pressure and so on. So I'm not saying it's always mild, but in, in general, uh, it would it would tend to be a milder um, situation. So for that, uh, the testing is often the skin, skin prick testing and or blood testing for what we call RAST or R-A-S-T. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and if one f- is found to be positive for that component, and one can have more than one, by the way, uh, it's, uh, you know, basically a matter of, of desensitizing uh, the the person in in addition to avoiding of course I, I don't think it, that means that you you know you, you can't or you shouldn't avoid it I think that both are important so so that's um that's the mold allergy piece the second one is uh, basically relating to what we call mold colonization and so mold colonization is where the actual mold species let's say it's aspergillus which is one of the most common mold species actually gets into the body and uh and and that can actually cause symptoms by various different mechanisms uh for instance just causing um causing local effects and so uh, if that's the case, and, and you know, one of the most common diagnoses is aspergillosis, like pulmonary aspergillosis. It's it's probably is very much underdiagnosed in conventional medicine, and because and one of the reasons for that is mold is quite hard to isolate or grow in in culture plates, and so um, as a result, uh, it, it's often not picked up. But it, you know, for instance, one study found that more than ninety percent of chronic sinusitis cases were actually related to fungal colonization. So in, if that's the case, generally one needs to use herbal or pharmaceutical antifungals and also generally a modified diet, particularly avoiding sugar and other things that would be tending to feed the fungal species. So that's the second piece. And then the third one is where people have much more of a whole body process going on, uh, an inflammatory response of some type. And you could say there's two subtypes. One is more the classic CIRS type and the other one is mast cell activation and I consider them to just be variants of, of, of the same thing like you could say mast cell activation is also a, a type of chronic inflammatory response it's just that the the difference is that the predominance of mast cells in, in mast cell activation and therefore having to look specifically at the mediators which are being released by the mast cells such as histamine and specifically addressing those yeah and there can be some crossover as well like you can have SIRS and some colonization for example can't you yes most definitely yeah so it doesn't necessarily have to be one of those things excluding all the others no that's correct it can definitely be um be a combination of two or more and in in some cases it's a bit of a a shade of gray but in general i think that's a useful way of looking at it Mm. 
So do you do any testing in terms of sort of pathology work uh, to actually get a definitive diagnosis or do you do you go off VCS testing or do you do symptom questionnaires? What's your process? Well, the, the classic way of doing it used to be uh, to, use, to do a thorough history and examination and then yeah, to use the visual contrast sensitivity or VCS testing. Most ideally, is um, is doing it in person rather than online, but online can be useful as well. We recommend recommend Dr. Shoemaker's website, survivingmold.com, for that. And I think it, it costs about $20 or so to go yeah. and do it. Yeah. And uh, basically that's a test of, of neuroinflammation. So it's not 100% specific for mold, but if it's positive, it's another a tip-off that it could well be uh, biotoxin-related. Uh, so uh, then we would generally go and do other tests. Now, originally we used to do HLA gene testing and you know cortisol and ACTH and thyroid function and testosterone and then go off and get some specialized tests done with Quest and LabCorp in the US who we had an arrangement with. Um, however, that's become much harder to access at the, at the moment, so we haven't been doing that. But there are specific biomarkers that... Uh, that were looked at by uh, the original research group, which tend to be elevated in patients with uh, biotoxin-related illness. Um, however, it's not as it's not specific for mold. It just it gives you an idea that that you're probably somewhere in that area of of having um, some type of biotoxin-related illness. Yeah. So say if someone was listening to this and they, they think that they might have SIRS or MCAS or mold illness and they want to get this formalised, what do you, I mean, who, who do you recommend they see? What, what do you recommend they ask for at their GP? Uh, well, yeah, so... <laughs> <laughs> I know it's a loaded question. <laughs> yeah, it is. So, so it's, it's a tricky one because it's not actually in the armamentarium of most GPs. Uh, so uh, one option would be if their uh, general practitioner is um, willing to contact myself or another trained um, doctor in this area, we could help guide them through it. Uh, however, I think it's a bit tricky to just work with someone who hasn't actually looked at this at all because uh, essentially there's a high chance that, that one will be just more put in the um, in in the the bucket of having depression or anxiety, some other syndrome like that, and, mm. and there won't there won't be a high enough level of belief. Mm. Or prescribed antihistamines, and if those antihistamines don't work here, try these other antihistamines. Yeah, yeah, which interestingly is actually part of the treatment in in mold you know in in mold allergy and also MCAS. So that it's not totally wrong or anything like that, but often it's not it's not sufficient to get the, the level of improvement, especially if one has more than one type of mold-related illness. Yeah. I've definitely recommended clients to GPs before. In fact, we, we rang your clinic and uh, got a referral for a client who was in, uh, down in Melbourne and uh, the lovely people at your clinic uh, put us onto someone down there who's a mold-literate GP. Uh, and, yeah, this was for MCAS and she did prescribe a range of antihistamines, but the brilliant thing was is that we were also doing other work so that the, the GP and I were collaborating to do other work on the gut and, and uh, more anti-inflammatory approaches so that the antihistamines would work in the short term to help bring the person some relief, but in the long term we were doing a lot of other stuff under the surface. And I really liked that approach, like I really, I, I think there's, 
there's a lot of space to collaborate in in this particular area because sometimes the the GPs can give things to the patient that naturopaths just can't provide simply can't do yeah, yeah, that's absolutely right. And and so, you know, Dr. Shoemaker's original protocol was actually quite heavy on pharmaceuticals, you know, so we used cholestyramine and then there was something called BEG nasal spray and then a number of other pharmaceutical options and then finally what's called VIP nasal spray uh, as the last step. However, as time has gone on, we've, uh, we've kind of made a more integrative approach to this and therefore... You know, it is possible to do it without pharmaceuticals, although, you know, having a mix of both can often be beneficial. Yeah, I think the the right thing at the right time for each person like needs to be considered and and I think it's it's really important as a naturopath to know, you know, know when to hold them, know when to fold them kind of thing. But uh, it's good to know that there are GPs around Australia that we can now refer to confidently knowing that they're on the same page and and, and will continue going down that that path that that we're hoping to go down so um can you please explain what cholestyramine does because if someone was to be listening to this and they started googling it they're probably going to read that it's a cholesterol medication right yeah yeah so it originally was used as a, a cholesterol lowering medication and also it's actually used after gut surgery and so on to mop up any sort of extra bile that might be around, particularly if people have had their their bowels shortened. So it's something that that has a long history of use. However, the other thing that's been found, and and probably the reason it does lower cholesterol, is it by it basically it it binds onto bile. It's it's the the technical name is a bile acid sequestering agent. And so when you have um, mold toxins in the system, often they are coming out in the bile and then recirculating through the small intestine. Now, if you add cholestyramine or another binder in the system, which is, uh, which is effective at binding onto mold toxins, then basically it, it binds onto those toxins and then help, takes them out in the bowel. So um, rather than the ongoing... Um, hepatic recirculation taking place ones uh you know that basically allows the mycotoxins to be excreted from the body yeah and do you use cholestyramine just for mold uh related SIRS or do you use it for other other types as well of biotoxins no, it's used for all types, really, but it's it's more tricky with tick-borne-related um, problems because of the other therapies they, they tend to need to be on. Mm. Yeah. So can we go over some of the other causes of SIRS? So obviously we I, we brushed over a few of them earlier with the recluse spiders and, and whatnot, but what are some of the most common ones you see in Australia that aren't due to mould? Yeah, so the, the most common other um, type of, of biotoxin-related illness is related to tick-borne illness or, or vector-borne illness in general, and they can be related to bacteria such as Borrelia and Babesia. Uh, there's another bug called Bartonella, which is it's unsure at this point whether it causes a CRS, but it certainly causes a lot of problems. And uh, so there's still ongoing research taking place uh, uh, regarding these bacteria and their role in illness in Australia. However, in general, we've found that that 
um, that there can be positivity for many of these bacteria in patients who are chronically unwell, particularly if they've had a tick bite in their history, and that can trigger a chronic inflammatory response. And, and part of the whole... Um, the whole syndrome that they have is just uncontrolled inflammation, and that can be mast cell um, centered. Mm, okay, yep. So it's like the that the bite actually switches some sort of inflammatory process on, and the, there's obviously some infection there. Like I, in naturopathy, we often call it stealth infections, but there's obviously yep. some sort of infection there, uh, and. How do you deal with that infection? Is it as simple as giving antibiotics? And I'm asking this, even though I kind of I know what you're going to say. <laughs> like, because a, a lot okay. of a lot of practitioners will say, "Okay, infection here. Have some have some antimicrobials, whether it's herbs or antibiotics." Well, but yeah. what needs to be if, done first? If it's an acute tick bite, then yes, I think that is a reasonable approach. Uh, because it is more than it's more like a, a more classic infection in that case, uh, and it's not as hidden. And, and one can generally get quite good uh, effects just from giving antibiotics, uh, and and that's often recommended if if people have tick bites and have any significant uh, local reactions, or they already have any type of biotoxin-related illness. Mm, yeah. Do you need to get the inflammation down before you go after the biotoxin? Uh, it's a good idea. Yeah, it's very in chronic cases, yes. Uh, yeah. so, so, so particularly if someone's been unwell for many, many years. And the other thing that happens is because that's been a, uh, a inflammatory storm, so to speak, that infection or that tick bite rather, because there's been a, a inflammatory storm due to the, the tick bite, then often one starts um, reacting to all types of biotoxins, including those in water damaged buildings. So that's the funny thing. It often, you know, often both are, are mixed up in, in, in any chronic illness patient. There's a bit of um, tick borne illness going on, and there's a bit of water damaged building and uh, related biotoxin illness. So it basically, you know, this is very rare these days to see someone who's got a tick-borne illness who doesn't have a degree of mold sensitivity as well. Right. Yeah, that makes so much, so much sense. And so it's a, it's a good reminder for any practitioners out there who happen to be listening that, or and patients as well. But when you think you've gotten to the root cause of your problem keep looking and keep drawing that timeline. And I know in naturopathy we, and functional medicine, uh, practitioners will often be putting all the, the events and all the things that have happened to a person into a chronological order, into this timeline, so that we're looking for these never, never been well since points. And it's interesting because like, like you just said, like if the, if the mold has set someone off, then it would be really easy to point the finger at the mold and be like, there, we found our culprit. Yep, yep, it's mold. Yep, here's what we do. But it sounds to me like we also need to have a look at the events leading up to that water damage building, exposure, et cetera, that may have paved the way. Yes, absolutely. I, I really agree with what you're trying to say there, that there, there 
often is a plethora of different factors going on. As I say, I mentioned the emotional trauma piece is often one that is neglected. Um, but the, the, you know, as I mentioned in my own personal journey, you know, often there is a, a piece around the gut microbiome. Uh, sometimes people have a condition called um, pyroluria or other type of mineral imbalances. So the, there's many layers to these types of chronic illnesses. And, and the more you're able to address, the more satisfactory the results you will get. And it's really interesting that, that you bring the pyroluria into it as well because you often see that popping up in people who've had childhood trauma. So I think there's no coincidences here. Yeah, that's right. It's, it's almost like that, that you know, one layer leads to another and, and the more layers one has, the more unwell they are. It's a simple way of thinking about it. Mm, yeah. So again, a good reminder not to do everything at once, but to peel the layers off bit by bit and, and keep looking for at the answers behind the answers behind the answers. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, what do you do when a patient is reacting to everything? So often naturopaths will see, and I'm sure GPs do as well, they see people presenting with uh, paradoxical reactions to herbs and supplements. Like they take a little bit of this herb and they have a massive inflammatory response, even though it might be an anti-inflammatory herb. Do you, have you seen this in practice and, and what do you, what's causing it and what do you do? Yes. Yeah. That, that seems to be becoming more and more common where you just have the, um, the super reactors, so to speak. And, uh, and the way we look at it actually is that generally speaking, there will be a component of limbic system dysfunction and, uh, and a level of, uh, mast cell activation as well. So it's, and, and there's an interplay between those two factors. So, you know, often there will be a significant trauma piece there in the background, or, or it could even be a biotoxin of some type that's triggered the, the limbic system to, uh, be responding as it is. And so one generally then needs to either start with the limbic system, uh, retraining, which is, uh, and there's, there's various forms of that, but it relates to retraining parts of the brain that include the amygdala and uh, the insular level of the brain. And there's, there's one called the, the Gupta program of amygdala and insular retraining, and that's not named after me. Oh. That's another Dr. Gupta. It's another, yeah, it's another Gupta, Ashok Gupta in London, who's a psychologist who's created this program and he's actually published peer-reviewed studies on this and the effectiveness of it. And it involves a, n a number of different training procedures and, you know, one needs to give a certain amount of time to these every day. And so his program costs something like, you know, four to $500, I think, Australian, but it's all online and it's very, very well done. And it's, uh, it, it can become the bedrock of, of someone's program who's a super reactor. It's a matter of them just really getting to, the, to really understanding that there's no danger. Because what's happening is that there's a, there's a certain danger signal in the brain. Uh, some people call the amygdala the smoke alarm of the brain or the fire alarm of the brain because what it does is it basically reacts 
to various um, dangers or threats. And it then alerts the rest of the brain um, by causing a, an increase in, in sympathetic drive, or if you like, a, a danger response. And so when that's happening, and someone's really deep in that, then even if you give them any type of herb or uh, um, or supplement or other treatment, they, that will generally trigger their, their smoke alarm, so to speak, and therefore they'll just have a physiological response to that, which is not actually the effect of the substance itself. Yeah. It's, it's their own limbic system responding. And does the amygdala grow in size or in strength, like if a person is exposed to trauma or has PTSD or something like that? Yeah, in the short term it gets swollen, and then in the long term it becomes shrunken. Right. And yeah, and and so, but there's that sensitivity is there, and so so the 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 focus of these type of retraining programs, and another one is called the Dynamic Neural Retraining System by Annie Hopper. The purpose of these systems is that they are able to assist with lowering the sensitivity. It's like it's like training the brain to realize that there, you know, that there isn't any ongoing danger. It's like tuning the fire alarm in your house so that it only starts picking up actual smoke. So if anyone's had the experience of a fire alarm going off all the time. Uh, <laughs> I've got a really sensitive one in my kitchen that goes off when I cook steak. <laughs> right. So you know how annoying that is. It's just steak. <laughs> so what you need to, yeah, so, so in some cases what you need to do is look at the sensitivity of that device and, and tune it so that it's only it's only responding to significant dangers. So uh, in this case of, of a person with biotoxin-related illness, you want to decrease the sensitivity of their limbic system so so that they're not seeing every little thing in life, including a herb or a supplement, as being a danger. They're just um, it's only when they're exposed to major amounts of, of mold, for instance, that, that that kind of response is triggered. How long do these programs go for? Is this like a, a you know, one month, five months, six months? Like what's More involved? Six to 12 months, yeah. Yeah, right. So someone might have to do this for six to 12 months before you can then go back in with, you know, drugs and binders and supplements, et cetera. Um, well, they don't. They generally don't need to do the whole program uh, before you know before you start. Like in other words, they will often have significant improvement while they're doing it. So I'm not saying you have to wait for them to complete it necessarily. Uh, however, yeah, they have to do a significant amount, and uh, it's you know basically they need to get to the stage where 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 that level of extreme sensitivity has. Um, has subsided to some degree, and so it's um, it, it's a tricky one in knowing when and how to actually test the waters. Mm. Yeah, so it sounds like you can start to go in with a few things that you can do alongside that program, but every single person's going to be different in terms of their timeline of, of when and how you can go in. Yes, that's right. But the, the key is just to work on those things first. And then, and, and the, often the first line of supplementation then or medication would then be for mast cell activation rather than, you know, getting straight in there with, with, um, with uh, biotoxin binders. Yeah. And so again, when we're talking about mast cell activation, we're talking about really working on that histamine response, right? Yeah. That's yeah. Right. 
Where does diet come into this, especially with mast cell activation? Do you prescribe or recommend low histamine diets? Do you do gluten-free with people? What what do you usually lean towards? Yeah, it's a it's basically a um, a combination diet of like a, a a low mycotoxin type approach plus a low histamine approach, and so sometimes that means there's a little bit of trade off. And rather than trying to get rid of every histamine food, you know, you may allow some degree of moderate histamine foods um, in order to to also not be you know taking gluten and taking uh, sugar in the diet and so on. So it's a combination. When you say low mycotoxin, are you literally talking about yeast in foods and, and mold in foods? No, no, there can be mycotoxins in food as well. Like a classic example would be peanuts, how, you know, often contain aflatoxin. Yeah. Or dare I say it, coffee? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's, that's one of the ones that's that's the, a lot. Yeah. No one wants to hear it. No one wants to hear it. <laughs> but, but, yeah, aflatoxins can grow on coffee can't they yeah and ocrotoxin ocrotoxin that's it and even more common i think so mm. yeah that's that's right it, it, it there are a number of foods which uh which can contain mycotoxins and at this point we don't know how much they contribute dr shoemaker wasn't actually a big believer but i think probably the prudent thing is to try and avoid them um because really adding any extra uh biotoxin load into your system just doesn't make sense mm. absolutely okay you and I both live in some pretty warm, humid parts of Australia. So I'm in Byron Bay. You're on the sunny coast. Uh, it's bloody mouldy here at the moment. <laughs> We've had weeks and weeks and weeks of La Nina-style rain and then the sun comes out and then green stuff grows on everything in Byron. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure it's pretty similar to where you are as well at the moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are some of I know it, it's it's really interesting to ask your perspective on this because you did train with the shoemaker protocol in the US but what are the differences you see between some of the th- you know what are the things we need to consider in Australia that are unique to Australians like how are we different here with our climate and our buildings yeah that's a great question so um Many of the problems are similar, and I first want to just mention that it's not just humid. Like humidity is only one small factor, um, and yeah, if there's excess humidity, that in and of itself can cause some degrees of dampness and mold in a house. However, the more significant factor is if there's actually been what we call water ingress into the house. So whether that's occurred via a leak, or uh, a you know something like a overflown bath or sink or um, or some other some other problem where water has actually physically got into the substance of that building you know something like um, insufficient waterproofing is another significant one and uh, and that when you that's when you really get a significant problem with water damage in a building now humidity in and of itself is a problem and you really want to keep that down and the the most obvious way of doing that is by using dehumidifiers and one can also run the air conditioner on dry mode you're really trying to get that down to around 30 to 50 percent humidity and uh, you know recently the the humidity levels have been very high (laughs) A little so, more than that. <laughs> so, so that is one factor, but I just want to mention that. And yeah. then 
In terms of the, I mean, basically with respect to the US and Australia, the building codes in both countries are really insufficient to protect against this problem. Now, there's some differences in houses over there, like, you know, crawl spaces and attics and basements are much more common. And over here, we have, you know, slightly different design, you know, particularly with Queenslanders and so on. So they, they, there is a slightly different um, spectrum of problems. However, basically, um, it comes down to the fact that it's still very common for buildings to be water damaged, especially if they're older buildings. But even even new buildings aren't totally exempt from it. Yeah, I've actually got a, a couple of mold illness clients on my books at the moment who are, are in very new builds, like houses that are less than three years old, but just haven't been built properly or so there was a defect in the building. Uh, one client, the eaves weren't wide enough, so water was coming in through the window frames when it rained. Yeah, it, just because you're in a new building isn't any guarantee, is it? No, it's not. Yeah, it's a bit scary actually. You're like, oh, a new build, that must be mould-free, let's, let's live there, but it's not always the case. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. So one needs to be very careful, especially if you've developed CIRS due to various causes, then the level of cleanliness that you need in a place is actually quite high. Uh, and therefore, you need if you're needing to have a place inspected uh, by a mould inspector, you need to get one who's very well qualified and, and familiar with, uh, with CIRS or MCAS uh, problems related to mould. And, and how these type of, of patients can be exquisitely sensitive to mould mm. in a building. Yeah. It's one of the things I, I, I do see in a lot of my mould clients, unfortunately. We're seeing a lot of battles between tenants and landlords or tenants and, and property managers, owners and builders, patients and insurance companies. Why is mould not being given the weight and the recognition it deserves as a biotoxin and why why do we still seem to be fighting to have it recognized as being such a problem for our health yeah it's a good question and uh, you know as i alluded to before there's just a certain degree of resistance in terms of of change in the medical world and with the medical paradigm uh, and, and and often it just relates to top professors and so on in each field uh, being willing to look at new areas of research and so on. And, you know, for instance, if one of those uh, professors of immunology all of a sudden started getting really interested in CIRS or had a family member affected by it and started really learning about it, then we probably probably quite quickly would see that this started to break into conventional medical circles. But um, until then, it, it's much more difficult. Now, we had a parliamentary inquiry into uh, the importance of, of biotoxin-related illnesses uh, two to three years ago, as initiated by uh, Lucy Wicks, the member of parliament for Robertson, uh, who personally had suffered from this. And uh, and while the, the committee were you know quite accepting of, of the fact that this this condition was a real entity. Uh, it's been quite um, it's been quite delayed for there to have been any significant response. And now the NHNRC are actually looking into this and uh, and are calling for ideas into further research and, and for a research group to be created. So we are hopeful that that will will take this field closer to having mainstream recognition. But what we probably need to do is get some major research on the board here in Australia. 
Yeah, yeah. One of the scariest things I saw last year was a, a video where someone was talking about the level of mold damage in public housing. And yep. that was, that was, I found that really distressing actually, because it was like, these are the people who probably can't afford to go to an integrative GP uh, or get the treatment that they need, because let's face it, the treatment for SIRS is not usually cheap. So right. yeah, the, and it was, it, there was a huge amount of lag time in getting mold fixed. Like there's visible mold and water damage in some of these buildings and they're having to live with it for months and potentially years on end before uh, it actually goes through the process of getting fixed. So I, I'm I'm really looking forward to the day when when this gets the recognition it deserves as a biotoxin and as a health issue because then we should be able to get some of these things remedied faster. Yes, absolutely. And you know, so the, uh, there's a lot of things that need to change eventually, and one of the big ones will be the building codes, but uh, also just education for medical practitioners. And if this was, uh, if there were guidelines for the diagnosis and treatment of this condition in wide circulation amongst GPs, we would see uh, a big change in in the ability of 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 general practitioners to be able to recognise this condition. Yeah, what's wrong with our building codes? Uh, so, um, <laughs> in a nutshell, <laughs> the whole lecture in and of itself. But in in brief, it, they basically just don't allow for sufficient, um, you know, sufficient standards of building um, to, that that basically would tend to prevent, uh, you know, water damage occurring to different different buildings and that can that can relate to just simple things in terms of just the way corners of walls are built or waterproofing um and and many and roofing there's various different areas that it relates to but you know it's 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 really basically there hasn't been a lot of thought put into that side um of of how buildings can impact health where you know i'd say that they're really while the building codes were created there wasn't any significant awareness of that yeah yeah oh well let's keep fighting the good fight uh let's talk about how people can connect with you online because i know that they're going to want to know so much more after listening to this uh You've got a course online that's available called Mold Illness Made Simple. Talk to us about that. Yeah, so I created this course in 2016, the first version that was that, uh, and basically the purpose of it was to provide really simple information to people uh, who are suffering from this condition. And the reason why is that often there's a lot of overwhelm when people uh, find out they're suffering from this condition. And, uh, and, and that can become part of the whole limbic system activation that, that, that can also uh, keep people stuck in this illness. And so I kind of thought to myself, if I could create a course that takes people through it step by step in a very simple way and they can actually understand it, that should help them to be able to feel much more calm and confident about 
being able to be properly treated and to be able to recover from this condition. And so uh, we had around seven to 800 people join the original the level one of the course, or sorry, the first version rather. And, uh, and the feedback was exactly that, that they felt much more calm and confident. And so last year, we basically updated the whole course and made it much more comprehensive, including all the different forms of mold illness. On the original one, it just covered CIRS, and, uh, and we've called it Mold Illness Made Simple too. And, you know, we believe that it's, it's, it's very valuable because there's also a number of pitfalls that are explained in the course. And so if you do the course, we think it's much, much less likely that you can fall into some of the common pitfalls that can occur in, in mold. You know, I talked about one of them before, which is getting a mold inspector who's not properly qualified. They come in and say, your house is fine, but then you continue to be unwell. And maybe a few years down the track, you then get someone more qualified who says, well, no, it's not fine, actually. The first person didn't look properly. And so if you do something like that, um, basically you've, you've lost a couple of years um, of, of time in terms of recovering from your illness. So it's really, really important that you find the right mold inspector. And if you need to do remediation, the right mold remediator, um, straight away. And, um, and, and, and not make the, the, the mistake of, um, you know, of, of getting someone improperly qualified. Another area would be, you know, taking, contaminated possessions with you if you decide to move house so there's a whole there's a whole list of possible pitfalls here and uh, i think one of the, the the important roles of the course is also to alert people to those and show how to do things the right way because it's even for someone like myself it's very difficult to cover that in consultations to cover all of the different pitfalls and everything it uh it's just it's it's just so many uh different areas that would need to be covered and so to be able to go and do a course in your space time uh, really makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I think it sounds perfect for anyone who wants to be able to advocate for themselves in in the medical system as well and to understand what to ask for, what to look for, and then how to go home and help themselves with all the things they need to do at home. Because, yeah, we haven't even touched upon today so many things like what to do when when your possessions get contaminated etc this it's it there is a lot of overwhelm with mold illness and I think also it's such a long road just to get to the start line because for, for many years so many of these people have been told there's nothing wrong with you or they can't find anything wrong with them or that they have adrenal fatigue or they have this or they have that and so sometimes it it's one of those things where realizing that you have SERS or mold illness is actually a relief because it's like, oh, finally, someone believes me. Finally, I know what's going on. But that's just the start line, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, so even just getting into the right ballpark is difficult, let alone hitting a home run to use an American expression. So there's a whole, yeah, so, so that's why I say, you know, you really got to make sure you don't make mistakes along the way because if you go and see, if you, for instance, go and see the, a doctor who doesn't believe in it for, you can waste five years on that, on going down side tracks. I mean, it is very important to exclude other things, but if, if someone just doesn't have any training in it whatsoever, um, they're just never going to recognize it. 
And so, so you know, making sure you go to the the right medical professional or or other type of practitioner, whether it be naturopathic or functional medicine, is really important. And then going to getting the right mold inspector and or mold remediator is very very important. Some cases, having a good health coach as well is a really uh, important part of uh, of recovery. And it, it's a you know, in some ways, that can be a much more economical way of going rather than seeing a doctor every you know month or something something like that, you could see them a little less frequently and work with a health coach in between. Yeah, absolutely. So what I'm hearing is that that you need to build your team. Yes. And you need to you need to have the right team and then, you know, then your chances of of, of winning the match are much higher. Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. Thank you for putting a course together that helps people to do just that because it, it's really obviously needed. And the fact that seven to eight hundred people signed up in the first, you know, in the first part of this course, the first incarnation of this course, is absolutely huge. And sadly, reflects how many people out there have got these problems. So, look, thank you for all the work that you're doing in this space. Uh, can you please just let people know how they can find you, website, social media, etc., so they can connect with you online? Yeah, so my general website is just dr Sandeep Gupta, S A N S A N D E P G U P T A dot com, and uh, that's just a link tree site with all the different links. And uh, there's a link down there to Mold Illness Made Simple online course, and then the link for that is just moldillnessmadesimple dot com, spelt the American way, M O L D. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Did you buy the misspellings and get the dot coms for them as well? <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't actually. Go, go do it. <laughs> um, and if people are looking for a mold literate practitioner, uh, a GP, I know that at the moment you're not taking on new patients, but is there anyone that, that, uh, anyone that we recommend that people reach out to? Yeah, so uh, we will shortly on our institute website have a listing of different practitioners. And so that website is lotusinstitutehh.com. Uh, and also there's a website called Toxic Mold Support Australia, which has a list of, of um, practitioners who do manage this illness. But we do have Dr. Rashmi Kabina at my clinic who's very, very skilled at dealing with these problems and can also deal um, with cases by uh, telehealth. And, uh, and there are a number of other doctors who I recommend around, around the country, such as Dr. Janet Kim and, and Dr. Ruth Edwards and, and uh, Anjana uh, Arunachalam in Melbourne. So there are many others. But if you, uh, if you, if you have a look at our websites, um, you, can, you can definitely find more information there. Fantastic. And I can definitely vouch for Dr. Ruth Edwards. She is fabulous, really, really collaborative and fabulous. So yeah, it's great to know that there are more and more uh, practitioners out there who are becoming mold literate and SERS literate and MCAS literate. Uh, so again, thank you so much for the work you do in this space. And thank you for spending your time and energy and wisdom with us today. You're very welcome, Jules. Nice to be with you. I hope you enjoyed listening to Straight Talking Natural Health. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Also, head over to my website at julesgalloway.com. There's a free quiz on there to see if you're at risk of burnout. 
I also have an amazing ebook called Heal Your Adrenals, which is a must for any woman with adrenal dysfunction, aka adrenal fatigue. When I'm not podcasting, I'm seeing clients all over the world via Zoom. I love working with fatigue, thyroid issues, autoimmunity, pyrrole disorder, mold illness, and complex cases, to name just a few. So why not book in and let's work together? All of this and more is available right now over at julesgalloway.com. That's all from me for the time being. I look forward to diving in with you again in the next episode. Bye for now. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst The Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of The Wellness Couch podcasts.